Well, believe it or not, you have already been well taught this morning uh, through those songs, uh, singing, singing the lyrics of those songs, right? We were letting the Word of Christ, the Word of God, richly dwell within us uh, as we were singing psalms and hymns and, and spiritual songs, and that's what happens when you sing, sing songs that are straight from the Scriptures and communicate truth from God's Word, and uh, that's why those songs are so encouraging and so challenging, uh, so refreshing. Uh, so moving to sing because we're really just singing the word of God and so uh, it's been good to sing with you this morning and uh, we have an opportunity now to turn to God's word uh, directly and uh, see what he has to say to us today. Uh, Last Sunday I uh, provided a a kind of a corporate launch, a preview to our uh, Wednesday night series, our, our summer super study on holy habits, six ways to grow in godliness. We had a great turnout this, this first uh, Wednesday, uh, and uh, uh, Fred Sabins did a super job uh, teaching us about the importance of disciplining ourselves to, to, to hear the word, to read the word, to, to study the word, to memorize the word, and to apply God's word. And uh, this coming Wednesday, uh, we have the privilege of having Adam Tyson back in town. Lisa's here this morning. It's great to have you back. Lisa, welcome. And uh, Adam will be here uh, in just a day or two, and he's going to be preaching on Wednesday night on, on the importance of prayer and how this is a vital habit that every Christian needs to develop in order to grow in godliness. And we said uh, that the goal of this series is to help all of us to grow closer to God and become more like Him by developing devotional habits or spiritual habits that provide us regular time to be with him, to be with God. And uh, there have been a number of popular books written over the last 30 years or so on this, on this subject of spiritual dis- disciplines. My favorite, I said last week, was Donald Whitney's Spiritual Discipline for the Christian Life, which I hope you all have um, uh, on order from Amazon or from our resource center. Uh, you're anticipating it coming in the mail this week so that you can begin reading it this summer kind of as a supplement to our, our summer series. But um, Whitney based his book on 1 Timothy 4.7 where Paul commanded Timothy to discipline himself for the purpose of godliness. And according to Whitney, the spiritual disciplines are the means that God has ordained for us to discipline ourselves for the purpose of godliness or Christ-likeness, as we said, was the alternate meaning of godliness. Whitney writes this, he said, the spiritual disciplines are like channels of grace, of God's transforming grace, as we place ourselves in them to seek communion with Christ, his grace flows to us and we are changed. And we tried to make the point last week very clear that ultimately we are conformed to Christ by communing with Christ. In other words, being with Jesus is the key to being like Jesus. And so the spiritual disciplines are really uh, just different ways for us to spend time with Jesus. Uh, Kevin DeYoung in his recent book, The Hole in Our Holiness, I'm going to mention it later, um, uh, he said this, we must always remember that in seeking after holiness, we're not so much seeking after a thing as we are seeking a person. And that is so foundational to our understanding of the spiritual disciplines uh, because if we don't remember this, um, practicing the disciplines will be a duty or a drudgery rather than a delight uh, that God intended them to be. We said last week that God says in his word that the main reason he chose to save us was to glorify himself by making us like his son Jesus. 
And someday every one of us who are true believers will be perfectly pure and holy and completely conformed to the image of Christ. But just because God has predestined us to be made like Jesus in the future, that's our destiny, uh, that doesn't mean we should just kick back and relax and enjoy the ride to heaven uh, without exerting any effort. God commands us to strive to be more like Christ, to be holy as He is holy. Hebrews 12.14 says, pursue sanctification or strive for holiness. 1 Timothy 4.10, Paul says, it is for this purpose, or, or he's talking about godliness, that we labor and strive. Paul said in Philippians 3, verse 12, that he says, I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. In other words, I was saved to be like Jesus, and I press on uh, towards that, toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And, and when it came to helping others come to know Jesus, this is what Paul said in Colossians 1.29, For this purpose also I labor, striving according to His power, which mightily works Within me, he was proclaiming Christ to every man that he might present every man complete in Christ and it was for this purpose he labored, striving according to his power. Whose power? Not his own power, but Christ's power which mightily worked within him. So Paul made it clear that he didn't strive in his own strength, but according to the strength and power that God provided him through his relationship with Jesus Christ. I can do all things through myself who strengthens me. No, I can do all things through Christ, who strengthens me. And so throughout his letters, Paul stressed that that discipline was a, a normal, necessary part of the Christian life. Uh, how He talks about how he disciplined himself, how he ran, how he fought, how he buffeted his body. But he was careful to emphasize that it was a, don't miss this, a dependent discipline. A dependent discipline. Now, that might sound to you like an oxymoron, right? A, a contradiction like jumbo shrimp, right? Those two don't seem to go together. Um, dependent discipline. But it's really an attempt to be faithful to the tension that we find in Scripture between God's sovereignty and man's responsibility regarding the doctrine of sanctification, Not salvation. We're not, we're not talking about salvation here in general. We're talking about sanctification in specific here. Uh, last week I tried to, to clarify this issue of, of the doctrine of salvation in general and that it includes three distinct uh, phases or aspects. Remember what they were? What are they? What is the past aspect of salvation? We call it justification, right? What is the present aspect of salvation? We call it sanctification, and then the future aspect of salvation is what? Glorification. So you've got justification, sanctification, and glorification, three parts of the big picture of the doctrine of salvation. Justification is that one-time event that occurs at the moment of our conversion when God applies the substitutionary work of Christ to our account and forgives our sin and declares us righteous and blameless before Him. That's what it means to be justified. Sanctification is that gradual, ongoing process that begins the moment that we're justified, whereby the Spirit of God sets us apart from sin and grows us and matures us and conforms us more into the image of Christ. That's what it means to be sanctified. Glorification is the final act that God will accomplish in our lives the moment we die or when we see Jesus when he returns 
whereby all of our sin will be permanently removed and we will be perfectly conformed to Christ for all eternity. That's what it means to be glorified. I also said last week, and we were kind of rushing through it at this point, but we also need to zoom in further on what the Bible says about sanctification. Forget about justification, forget about glorification, and let's just zero in on the center section of salvation and talk about the doctrine of sanctification. And we said that there's also a past, present, and future aspect of that as well. There's what's, first of all, called positional sanctification. Um, That's the past aspect of sanctification, that we are instantaneously set apart from sin unto God at the same exact time that we're justified. In other words, we're clothed in, in Christ's righteousness, in the holiness of Christ. That's why we are called saints, holy ones, set apart throughout the New Testament. So there's a sense that positionally, we have already been sanctified. We already are sanctified, positionally. Let me show you some verses that that talk about this that we didn't have time to look at last week. Acts 26, verse 18, Paul talks about how he was sent by God to the Gentiles to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. Notice the past tense nature of having been sanctified. How about 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2? This is how he addresses the believers in Corinth. He says, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling. So he says, I'm addressing those of you who have been sanctified. You're saying, wait a minute, time out. I thought that, that sanctification was an ongoing process and I'm not yet sanctified. That's what this whole Christian life is all about. Well, again, he's talking about the positional aspect of sanctification. Notice 1 Corinthians 6.11, after describing the sins that were rampant in Corinth from which these believers were saved out of, uh, the, the fornication and idolatry and adultery and homosexuality and thievery and covetousness and drunkenness and swindling, he says, such were some of you, verse 11, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. You're like, now I'm really confused because now he's getting these things out of order. I thought it went justification, sanctification, and glorification. Well, now he's talking about sanct- being sanctified and justified. Well, again, he's talking about what happens instantaneously with our justification, this positional sanctification. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 10, mentions this past aspect of sanctification. Hebrews 10, 10, by this will, the will of God, we have been sanctified. Again, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Verse 14, for by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are Sanctified. And then in 1 Peter chapter 1, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2, he talks about those who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ and to be sprinkled with his blood. May grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. He's just saying, listen, I'm talking to those of you who are saved, who have been chosen by God, you've been sanctified. And so all those verses. Um, talk about sanctification from a positional standpoint. In other words, what is our position in Christ? In, in, in God's eyes, we already are sanctified. We are set apart, right? 
clothed in the righteousness of Christ, we are saints, right? Well, but then we see saint, the, the whole concept of sanctification being fleshed out in different ways throughout uh, the, the New Testament. Uh, this is what we call the progressive sanctification, okay? You've got positional sanctification or progressive sanctification or practical sanctification, and this is the, the, the idea that we are increasingly set apart from sin as we flee from it, as we fight to subdue and mortify it. Uh, again, we practically become more like Christ in our everyday lives. This is what's called progressive sanctification, this, 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 this spiritual growth, right, that kind of goes like this as we become more and more like Christ. Some verses that you could refer to that, 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 that uh, talk about this idea, Romans 8, 13, for if you are living according to the flesh, you must die, but if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live, talking about the need to mortify uh, the sins of our, of our flesh. 2 Corinthians 7, 1, uh, in the context of, of being holy and not being yoked together with unbelievers, uh, Paul says, therefore, having these promises... Beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Now we see that there's more of a personal element here that we're supposed to be cleansing ourselves and we should be perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Um, notice 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 11 and 12. Paul said to Timothy, But flee from these things, you man of God, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called, and you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. So here, Paul is exhorting Timothy to what? To flee, to, to pursue, to fight, to take hold of eternal life. And then uh, probably a very familiar passage is Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 4. Uh, the writer says this, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, he's, he's referring to everyone he mentioned, the, 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 all the saints of old uh, in Hebrews chapter 11 who live by faith. He says, since we have so great a cloud of, of examples uh, who have gone before us, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. And so the writer of Hebrews says that there is a, an element while we have been sanctified and set apart, right, and, and are viewed in, in, in God's eyes, clothed in the righteousness of Christ, i.e. sinless, right, because um, uh, uh, ju being justified is we're declared innocent, we're declared righteous, right, but there's still this, this aspect of striving against sin that, that involves what? Laying aside encumbrances, running with endurance, fixing our eyes on Jesus, considering him, uh, resisting. And then lastly, in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 5, Paul says this, or Peter says this, now for this very reason also, applying all diligence. Some of your versions may say, make every, what? Effort. You see that? Make every effort. 
that to your faith you would supply or add moral excellence and in your moral excellence knowledge and in your knowledge self-control and in your self-control perseverance and in your perseverance godliness and in your godliness brotherly kindness and in your brotherly kindness love. And so here we have this, 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 this second aspect of sanctification that's different than having been sanctified that we are in the process of being sanctified. This is progressive sanctification. And, and typically when we talk about sanctification as Christians, this is the aspect of sanctification that we're talking about. It's progressive sanctification. And then, of course, there's a third aspect, the future aspect of sanctification, and that's what you could call perfect sanctification, right? When we're finally set apart from sin, the, the moment we see Jesus at our death or at the rapture, and we will be forever separated from sin, and all of our striving will cease. We just sang that, right? Talking about our striving against sin will cease. Man, what a, what a glorious day that will be when we can finally just, I can finally relax, right? And, and not have to fight so hard against, against my sin. So this three-dimensional nature of salvation in general, justification, sanctification, and glorification, and sanctification in specific, right, positional sanctification, progressive sanctification, and perfect sanctification, they must be clearly understood and, cl- and kept distinct from one another, okay? Because if you, if you just kind of see it all as one thing, it just gets all blurry and muddy. Furthermore, I think in understanding sanctification, um, progressive sanctification, that is, a potentially confusing tension exists and a biblical balance needs to be carefully maintained regarding who's responsible for it. And we said last week that salvation in general, right, the, the, the process of salvation in general is monergistic. Mono meaning what? One, right? And so what we mean by that, that is salvation is solely the work of God, We don't cooperate with God in our salvation. There is nothing we can do to save ourselves. Amen? However, the present progressive aspect of sanctification that we've just been learning about is what you could call synergistic. In other words, it's it's something we do in partnership with God. It's, It's partly the work of God and partly our work. We cooperate with God in our sanctification. There are things that we can do to sanctify ourselves. Now, ultimately, we know that God is the one who sanctifies us by his grace, right? Jesus prayed to God, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth, John 17, 17. 1 Thessalonians 5, 23. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely. Hebrews 2, 11, For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one Father. We know that Jesus said that apart from me you can do nothing, John 15, 4. But that doesn't mean we should do nothing. Somewhere we, we, we stop there and think, oh, oh, apart from him we can do nothing, so I, I'm just going to sit down and do nothing. I heard somebody joke about the fact that too many Christians' life verse is Philippians 2, 3a, which says do nothing. Without selfishness or empty conceit, right? But they just stop there. Do nothing. That's my life verse. How many is that your life verse? Do nothing. Um, See, we aren't supposed to just wait around for God to, to zap us and make us like Jesus. We have to apply some sanctified sweat. That's what we're calling 
this message this morning, part two, uh, in our personal pursuit of Christ-likeness. And, and we see this coming out in Paul's writings. In, in Philippians chapter 2, verse 12, he says, So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. When I hear the words work out, what do you think of? Right? It's working out. You're sweating. You're, you're, you're working. And, and again, uh, is this talking about salvation, that we're working to, to earn our salvation? Absolutely not. He goes on to say, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So Paul challenges the Philippians to work out their sanctification, I think is the best way to understand this, but to remember that it's ultimately God who's working in them to accomplish his purposes. 1 Corinthians 15.10, Paul's own testimony, he says, but by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. So you see Paul trying to figure out a way in, in, in the English language there, I guess in the original language was, was Greek there, right? Trying to figure out a way to kind of bring these two ideas together that, 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 that there's a dependent discipline going on here. There's a discipline that's required of every believer, but it's a dependent discipline. And, and based on everything else Paul wrote about salvation being a free gift of God on, uh, uh, based on what God has graciously done for us through the person and work of Jesus Christ rather than something that we earn through our own work, our own effort, that we know that what he was talking about in these verses was sanctification. He wasn't talking about salvation. He wasn't talking about how a person is saved. He's talking about how a person is sanctified after they've been saved, after they've been justified. And so my question is then, who is responsible for our sanctification, God or us? Yes, thank you. That's the right answer, class. It's both of us. Sanctification is a joint venture between God and us. One of my favorite books I've ever read that really has made a defining impact in my life is this, is this book by Jerry Bridges called The Pursuit of Holiness. How many of you guys have read this book? It's a, 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 a hundreds of thousands apparently have at least bought the book. I don't know if they've read it, but it says they've sold that many. Um, but this is a foundational book uh, for every Christian's life. And again, I'm sorry, I keep telling you, you gotta read this, you gotta read this, right? You're like, you got the stack of books by your bed, right? Trying to get through all these ones I'm recommending. But this is a book that, that I kind of cut my teeth on as a young believer uh, in college, and, and I've never forgot it. And I've taken a number of other men through this book for, by means of a discipleship relationship. And, and, and this is a, just a great, great book about what does it mean to pursue holiness. But listen to how Bridges um, starts off this book. This is his preface, and it's, a, and it's such a brilliant uh, illustration. He says, A farmer plows his field, sows the seed, and fertilizes and cultivates, all the while knowing that in the final analysis, he is utterly dependent on forces outside of himself. And all the farmers and ranchers said, amen, right? He knows he cannot cause the seed to germinate, nor can he produce the rain and sunshine for growing and harvesting the crop. For a successful harvest, he is dependent on these things from God. Yet, the farmer knows that unless he diligently pursues his responsibilities to plow, plant, fertilize, and cultivate, he cannot expect a harvest at the end of the season. In a sense, he is in a partnership with God and he will reap its benefits only when he has fulfilled his own responsibilities. Farming is a joint venture between God and the farmer. 
The farmer cannot do what God must do, and God will not do what the farmer should do. And then he goes on to make application of this to our lives. He says, we can say just as accurately that the pursuit of holiness is a joint venture between God and the the Christian. No one can attain any degree of holiness without God working in his life, but just as surely no one will attain it without effort on his own part. God has made it possible for us to walk in holiness, but he has given to us the responsibility of doing the walking. He does not do that for us. And I read that because we need to guard against a a passive approach to our sanctification in which we expect God to, to do all the work for us, right? He transforms us into his image without any effort on our part. It's kind of the, the classic let go and let God, right? That was made famous through what, what's called the Keswick Convention over in Great Britain years ago. And, and it was just kind of this higher level uh, uh, kind of teaching where you could uh, attain a certain level in your Christian life where you kind of were above sin. And you kind of just floated up there. And uh, you didn't have to really work that hard because God had just brought you this. You just kind of had let go, kind of fallen back in the arms of Jesus and let him take over. And, and, and you, you achieved this kind of uh, uh, almost this, this perfect holiness on earth. Well, we need to understand from the, from the scriptures that God expects us to not be passive in our sanctification, but to actively and even aggressively exert ourselves and utilize the means he's given us to grow spiritually. Like what we're talking about on Wednesday night, holy habits, right? Reading the Bible, prayer, uh, uh, the church attendance and involvement in, in evangelism and, and fasting and, and, and uh, worshiping and singing, all these things. God causes us to grow through the means he's provided us to grow, we control the effort, right? He controls the results, like the farmer, right? Now, some of you might be thinking that everything I've set up to this point sounds like I'm just talking in a bunch of theological circles, just kind of going around and around, and you're like, okay, what's, what's he getting at? What's the point of all this, okay? Well, I want to show you why it's so critical for us to have a sound clear, balanced theology. Because in the last few years, a popular movement has been, has been gaining momentum in conservative evangelicalism, which has caused a much more passive form of sanctification to take root in many Bible-teaching churches like ours. Um, it's been called the free grace movement or, or the gospel center movement. There maybe is some distinction between those two. They've kind of merged and they go apart from time to time, but it's all kind of all the same thing, this free grace gospel center movement. And, and I think that those behind the movement are well-intentioned. Uh, I think they're motivated by a desire to exalt God's amazing grace uh, in the salvation of sinners and, and, and to highlight the, the unconditional nature of God's love for us, that no matter what we do, God loves us, and, and to liberate God's people from, from a legalistic, moralistic, do more, get better, try harder, read more, pray more, per, uh, performance-based, checklist Christianity. You're like, you just described my life, so what's wrong with this? I kind of like that. What? what um, that's why I think so many people are drawn to this because it sounds so refreshing, right? Um, 
but they're basically teaching that the secret to growing in Christ and overcoming sin in your life is simply basking in the finished work of Christ for us on our behalf. It's usually simply referred to as preaching the gospel to yourself. Preaching the gospel to yourself. Now, I don't know who originated that phrase, preaching the gospel to yourself, but I know it was popularized, it seems to me, by, by Jerry Bridges. He, he's written a lot about preaching the gospel to yourself, and, and as, a, as a concept, as a phrase, I don't have a problem with that. In fact, um, I think a lot of good has come from this renewed emphasis on the gospel. Some of the songs that we've sung this morning have come out of this gospel-centered movement in the church, where we're going back to the cross and the gospel and God's grace and God's amazing love for us. And it's, it's very encouraging. And I, I personally have been encouraged. I've been challenged by, by the welcome reminder that the Christian life fundamentally is not about what I do for God, but what God has done for me in Christ. I need to remember that. How about you? That, that's refreshing. I need to keep that at the, at the center of my thinking. And I need to be, be reminding myself of that every day. That, that I need to wake up and be captivated by, by Christ's love for me, right? God's love for me in Christ and let that be the thing that motivates me and drives me in, in everything that I do. However, because so much of the emphasis, it seems, has, has been placed on what God has done for us, it appears that some have forgotten that God has commanded us to do a lot of things. The Bible commands us to walk, Obey, flee, fight, wrestle, stand firm, resist, run, strive, yield, work, toil, labor, present, pursue, press on, put off, put on, deny, follow, die. The Bible commands us to do all those things. And so by calling people to focus so much on what's called the indicatives of Scripture, which are simply the, the statements in Scripture that describe what God has done for us, right? that's the indicatives, it's, it's all that God has done for us, that, that the imperatives in Scripture, that's what God commands us to do, seem to be de-emphasized and devalued, and in some cases completely ignored, completely forgotten about. And several well-meaning Bible teachers have been incessantly encouraging Christians to stop trying so hard. Stop trying so hard. You're like, I could hear that. That's good for me. I, am a, I do try hard in my Christian life. Stop trying so hard? Really? Seriously? That sounds good. I'll, uh, can I read a book about this? Can I go to a conference about this? I, I, I need to kind of be liberated from, from myself and my performance-based Christianity. And so uh, stop trying so hard and simply relax, rest, remember, and relish in who we are in Christ. Again, that sounds all very good, right? But by reading some of the books and blogs that are out there today, you would think that pursuing holiness was a sin in itself. That, that it was, that it was uh, even heretical to get up and tell people to, guess what, pursue holiness. You need to pursue holiness. You need to obey the word of God, even if you don't feel like it. Well, that sounds like heresy. That sounds like law. That sounds like legalism, right? Where's the grace? Where's the gospel and all that? And so whether intentionally or unwittingly, um, I think some have called into question the personal discipline and hard work aspect of the Christian life, and they've just taken the fight out of a lot of Christians. 
And I saw this happen to a, to a person I was meeting with a while ago, and, 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 and we used to love to get together and talk and pray together and hold one another accountable and talk about our, our, our relationship with our wives and our children and, and, and just our battle against sin and the flesh, and, and we always look forward to this time getting together, and, 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 and then something changed. I, uh, they started reading some of this material, and, and, and we would get together, and I just, it just seemed like there was no fight left. It was like, yeah, you know what, I blew it again this week, but you know what, I know Jesus loves me. I know it doesn't change the way he feels about me, and, and so I'm just gonna, you know, move on. I'm not gonna beat myself up over it, you know. Uh, it was just like, I was like, this doesn't sound like the same person that I, that I knew just a month or two ago. And, and it was almost like it got to the place where, hey, you know what, I'm, I'm okay with not being okay. And, and that sounds like a, I mean, a, a good thing, right? I mean, hey, let's just be honest. Let's, we're all not okay, right? We're all a mess spiritually. We all have room to grow. Hopefully you see me up here uh, regularly divulging kind of some of the, the, the battles in my own heart, right? And I, I hopefully I'm honest and transparent with you about the battles that I face in my life to the point where some of you are like, stop, time out, don't tell us that. I don't want to think of my pastor that way. You're supposed to be perfect. I want to keep you on the pedestal, right? Um, no, we try to be open and honest about these things. That, hey, we know we're not all okay. We all struggle with sin. But it's almost like now it's, it's kind of like that's just where we live, that, hey, we're, just, we're all not okay and it's okay. And so we all wallow in our not okayness. And I think it's, this is very subtle. This is how subtle it is, okay? That, that if you believe that no matter how much you sin, God will never love you any less, nor will he never love you any more, no matter how hard you try to be holy, giving in to sin isn't that big of a deal anymore. Think about it, Right? I mean, that's a, that's a great thing to think about. And I think it's true in regards to our position in Christ that God will never love us any less, right? No matter how much we sin and he will never love us anymore no matter how hard we try to be holy. Positionally, that, that's true. But it, it, it does lend itself to, you know what? If I give in to sin, it, it's really not that big of a deal. In fact, you know what? Stop dwelling so much on your sin because you know what? You dwell on your sin way more than God does. You just need to relax. I read a book on the way home from, uh, on a flight home from Singapore and it was this book here I already quoted from, The Hole in Our Holiness by Kevin DeYoung and uh, the subtitle is interesting. It's Filling the Gap Between Gospel Passion and the Pursuit of Godliness. And uh, I think why this is such a strategic book is because Kevin DeYoung has been right smack dab in the middle of all of this discussion about sanctification on the internet and in the blogosphere, as I call it, right? And, uh, and, and, and kind of bantering back and forth with different guys who are going online and saying certain things and, and, and he would be saying some of the same things but then also uh, providing some corrective, some, some balancing out of what was being promoted and what was being said. And so he got to the point where he finds out, I'm writing a book. And he's called, he calls it the hole in our holiness, filling the gap between gospel passion and the pursuit of godliness. In other words, there's a gap between this, this movement that it's all about being passionate about the gospel, which is a great movement. It's a great thing to be passionate about the gospel. But there's also this element of, of the pursuit of, of, of holiness here, 
and the pursuit of, pursuit of godliness. And there's this gap here. Somehow there's a big gap, and I want to I kind of fill that together, bring these two things together, right, so there's not this big gap. There's not this big hole, gaping hole. And, and I think he, he just very intuitively here um, points out the subtlety of theology that may sound sweet and refreshing on the surface, but at the end of the day, it's sloppy theology, and it's going to get you in trouble if you go too far with it, if you take it too far. Listen to how he describes this, and this is really good. He says, in an effort to own up to our own abiding sinfulness and highlight the gospel of free grace, we remove any notion that we can obey God or that he can delight in our, good, in our own good works. So we end up believing something like this, and then he kind of presents this little um, compilation, if you will, of what's being promoted in, 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 some, of this, uh, in some of this movement. I am a spiritual failure, but praise God, Jesus came to save spiritual failures like me. I cannot obey God's commands for one nanosecond. I never truly love God with all my heart or my neighbor as myself. Even my righteous deeds are like filthy rags. If you could see my heart, you'd see that my sins are as bad as anyone else's or worse. I'm a spiritual screw-up through and through, unfaithful to my faithful God. But the good news is, God has saved me because of Christ's death and resurrection. I am his adopted child, forgiven and clean. Nothing I ever do can make God love me any more or any less than he already loves me in Christ. Even though I continue to sin, I can never disappoint my heavenly father for he looks at me and sees the righteousness of his beloved son. What unspeakable good news. And on some level, that is unspeakable good news. Amen? We could say amen to, to, to most of that. Just on a surface level, we're like, amen, that's me. I'm a spiritual mess up, right? But praise God that Jesus loves me, right? God loves me in Christ and, and, and that, that I am set apart by him positionally, right? Seated at the right hand of God in heaven. The young says, so what's wrong with this? He says, well, as a general statement, confessing sin and clinging to the righteousness of Christ, it is absolutely true and beautiful. If I heard a paragraph like this, my first reaction would be to praise God for such a powerful reminder of gospel grace, amen? But if someone asked me to probe deeper, I'd caution that this statement is not very careful. And where our theology is not careful, our Christian lives are often adversely affected. In this case, the theological confusion can short-circuit a passionate pursuit of personal holiness. And I think he hit the nail on the head of what's wrong with this movement. It's, it's a theological confusion that can short-circuit a passionate pursuit of personal holiness. Now, many, even some in our own church, have been influenced by this confusing, and I say at some points, it seems to be getting more and more incorrect theology. Uh, much of it comes down to a, to a blurring of the lines between justification and, and sanctification and a, and a narrow one-dimensional view of, of sanctification. That's why um, I, I spend so much time trying to explain that all and say, hey, we've got to keep these things distinct, right, and not blur them together. And, and sadly, this whole thing has caused factions to develop within the body of Christ I know some churches that have actually split over this issue. Um, and it's even led some to question their own faithful pastor's orthodoxy and, and to begin to question, hey, is this guy really teaching us the whole counsel of God? 
Um, because we haven't heard this as much as we want to hear or should, should hear this. And so they decide to attend another church where they can hear more of this that sounds so good, right? And uh, whether you realize it or not, my orthodoxy has been called into question uh, in recent years, and some have actually left our church over this issue. And, um, I mean, this is something that our elders have, have talked a lot about over the last several years. We've, we, we've prayed together about this. We've discussed this together. We've talked to people uh, who are wrestling through these issues, and, and uh, it's really been a burden on our hearts um, that, that something is, is, is trying to take hold of not just the church uh, at large, but even this church that we feel like is leading to a place where we don't want to go uh, spiritually. And so, beloved, the simplest way I, th- I know how to clarify this issue is to, to, to say it's not an either-or issue, it's a both-and issue. And you say, well, that's a cop-out. That's easy. You're just saying let's just stay balanced. Exactly what I'm saying. Because why? We have a tendency to be pendulum swingers. That's what we are by nature. I confess to you a number of years ago that as I was getting into this and reading some of this material, it was very encouraging, very challenging to my soul, and at a point it showed me that I'd probably been up here a little bit too much emphasizing what we need to do, right, for Jesus and not emphasizing enough what Christ has done for us. And so hopefully it's kind of brought me back more to center, where I'm more balanced in that in my own heart, in my own mind, in my own walk with Christ, and hopefully you're hearing that maybe in the sermons, trying to finish the sermons by not just saying, okay, there's your list, to-do list to go for this week, right? But remember, you can do none of this in your own strength. You need to go back to Christ, right, to help you accomplish these things in His power and His strength. The Bible talks a lot about trusting Jesus, amen? But the Bible also talks a lot about trying really hard. Which is it? Are we to trust or are we to try? Both. Somehow, like God's sovereignty and man's responsibility, right, they fit together in God's mind, maybe not in our mind, but we're, we're trying to be faithful to both of these things here at this church. But the Bible talks about that we need to trust Christ and Christ alone. But there's also this element of trying and working and striving and fighting and warring and wrestling and running. And, and just, I mean, all you have to do is look at Paul's letters. Paul's letters are a perfect example of, of, of how, to, how to keep things balanced. Uh, his letters typically went like this. The first half was all about who we are in Christ, what Christ has done for us. And then the second half of the letter is, okay, therefore, this is how we should live in light of who we are in Christ. So he would start with the indicatives and just make statement after statement after statement about who Jesus is and what he's done for us and, that, 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 and what we are in Christ. And then he'd end with all these commands and exhortations, right, telling us directions, telling us this is what you should do now because of who you are in Christ. Ephesians is a great example. First three chapters, all indicative. Last three chapters, all imperative. Colossians, same thing. And so we find ourselves here in this this already but not yet phase in our Christian lives. You know what I mean by that? The already but not yet. It's the, the positional sanctification. I'm already there in heaven, seated at the right hand of God, according to Scripture, but there's also a not yet aspect in my Christian life that I'm still struggling with sin like crazy. Romans chapter 7. I think Paul was saved. He was a Christian, 
right, and a mature Christian when he was talking about his struggle with sin in Romans chapter 7. So there's, a, there's an already but not yet aspect. We're, we're in that already but not yet phase of sanctification whereby we are pushed from behind by all that God has done for us in Christ and pulled forward by all that God has called us to do and to be in Christ. So there's a, there's a pushing, right, from behind by the indicatives and there's a, there's a pulling by the imperatives. And so remembering who we are in Christ because of our justification is vital to our lives as Christians. It's something we need to go back to over and over again. I think that's why God, or, or why Christ ordained communion. Do this in remembrance of me, right? right? We're supposed to be doing this on a regular basis, remembering the gospel, remembering the cross and its implications for our lives. That's the basis of our sanctification, we, we couldn't be sanctified if we had not been justified, right? But the key to our growth as Christians is not, as one author says, simply hitting the, the reset button on our justification. Like just, oh, I, I, I messed up again. Boop. Clear the screen, right? Delete. Oh, I did it again. Oh, justification. It's covered by the blood, right? Listen, we always have the responsibility to strive for sanctification, to pursue holiness. But it's not a striving in our own power and our own strength apart from the grace of God. God doesn't save us by grace and then tell, tell us that the rest of the Christian life is on our own, right? It's up to us. Hey, I saved you. Have fun. See you in heaven. Right? No. Paul corrected this confusion in the churches in Galatia in Galatians chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, he said, You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Who's got you thinking crazy thoughts here? Confused you? This is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law? Or by hearing with faith? I mean, how were you saved? How were you justified? By, by, by the Spirit or by the works of the law? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, you are now being perfected by the flesh? In other words, now you no longer need to rely on the Holy Spirit. You, you kind of do it all in your own strength. You, you, you kind of sanctify yourself. And so, again, modern-day writers are grabbing a hold of that concept in Galatians 3 and, and, and wanting to liberate Christians from, from seeking to be sanctified in their flesh. And, and they want to guard them from any form of legalism or self-righteousness or law-keeping, if you will. And so what they're saying is that all you need to do to be more sanctified is reflect on God's amazing love and grace that he's displayed to you in your justification. And, 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 and as a result, your soul will be so filled with joy and delight that, that, that you'll naturally begin to say no to sin without any effort on your part. You don't have to do anything else. It'll just be, you'll, you'll be so blissful in your relationship with the Lord that, that saying no to sin will be easy. As if your will does not have to ever say no, right, to sin. There's never, it's like your will isn't even engaged in the process of resisting sin. And again, I mean, that sounds wonderful. Sign me up for that, right? But it ignores the countless texts of Scripture where it says that while we should rest in the gospel, we should rest in the gospel, right? Uh, Matthew chapter 11. Come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you 
Rest. Take my yoke upon you. It's light. It's easy, right? So we should rest in the gospel. Again, that was in the context, by the way, of trying to work your way to, sal- work your way to heaven, right? Trying to earn your salvation by your own good works. In other words, he was saying, come and rest in my work, the work that I've done for you in salvation and justification. At the same time, however, again, we're called to battle against our flesh and we're commanded to yield our will to God in obedience even when we don't feel like it. I've heard of uh, some, some people that used to go to a church of a friend of mine who left because they thought it was wrong to tell people to obey even when you don't feel like it. Listen, to call people to obey even when they don't feel like it is not anti-gospel. It's not legalistic. It's not moralistic. It's not self-righteous, performance-based Christianity. It is biblical Christianity. Listen, I wish I could tell you that every time I obeyed, I felt like it. There's a whole lot of times I obey and I really want to sin. Now, I mean, all you have to do is look at, the, look at Jesus in the garden. Not that he struggled with sin. We know he didn't struggle with sin. But he definitely wrestled in his humanness regarding his will when it came to dying on the cross. And what did he say to God? If there was, he said to the Father, God, if there's any other way, right? But then what did he finally say? Not my will, but your will be done. Jesus didn't feel like dying on the cross, <laughs> He didn't feel like drinking the wrath of God. He didn't feel like being separated from his father. But he submitted, he yielded himself to the father's will. Now at times when pointing out a a dangerous movement in, in the church, I think it's appropriate to mention specific names of preachers or authors to avoid or to exercise discernment when listening to their sermons or reading their blogs and, and their books. And, and we've talked a lot about some guys that uh, have, have been very helpful in, in helping us think clearly about this. One of the other main guys who's been at the center of this debate um, in what I call the blogosphere uh, is, is Tullian Tavigian. He's the pastor of Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. And if you know anything about the guy, he has an amazing testimony. I mean, just fascinating how this, this, uh, how this prodigal uh, grandson of Billy Graham, right, uh, God rescued from his sin and, and radically saved him. And uh, a lot of his testimony, uh, very compelling, uh, coming out in his theology, uh, coming out in his teaching, and... Um, one of his most popular books is a book called Jesus Plus Nothing Equals Everything. Um, kind of an attractive title, right? A, a, a title that kind of draws you in. And, and um, it's kind of a commentary on uh, Colossians, his theory on, on Colossians and the experience that he had at his church there. The first couple of years, it was really kind of a horrific experience for him. He also wrote a, another book recently called One Way Love. And then it has this kind of new tagline, inexhaustible grace for an exhausted world, which, again, you're like, oh, I like the sound of that. I'm exhausted, okay? I could use some inexhaustible grace, right? Um, and, and these books have been enthusiastically endorsed by a wide variety of people that we admire and that we respect. But at the same time, they have also received critical reviews from very godly, discerning people from around the world. And so that just kind of shows you that that uh, something's up, something's not quite right here um, when it's getting so many mixed reviews, right? 
Um, I provided some links uh, on the back of the outline this morning. Normally I put a quote at the bottom to kind of get you to think about, but I put some links on the bottom of that page, some uh, links to some internet sites that, that I think would be helpful. They've been helpful to me uh, in just kind of thinking through this issue. Um, also, I put uh, the, the names of the books that I'm, I've got up here with me today that I think every Christian should have on their shelf. You may not read them, but you have them handy, ready to look through when you need to um, go back to an issue. In fact, that's exactly what I did um, this week as I went back to a book I'd read years ago. Uh, this book here I'm going to mention in just a second um, and, and kind of reread a few sections. I thought, this is brilliant. This guy was talking about the very same thing 130 years ago. And so... I'd encourage you to, if you can't read it all, I know you can't read it all, uh, maybe zero in on that aggressive sanctification website. Uh, that was some, a series of 12 articles written by Michael Fabares, who's the pastor of Compass Bible Church uh, in Elisa Viejo, California. He was our man camp speaker last year. Kind of addressed this just briefly in one of our sessions. It was very helpful, but uh, I think you'd find those, those articles, aggressive sanctification, very helpful. Um, I think it's also very revealing that this past month, um, that the leaders of the Gospel Coalition, very godly men, uh, very um, uh, astute theologians, um, asked Tulian to remove his blog from their website because he was coming out uh, so imbalanced in some of the things that he was saying and he was not willing to be corrected by his fellow bloggers on the site. And I thought, this is interesting to watch. And again, it's, it's all very mind-numbing. I, I'm almost discouraging you to even, to even start the process of trying to weed through all this stuff, but in some sense, I feel it's a responsibility that I have as a pastor to, to make you aware of these things, uh, especially since they, they, they don't just affect our church, or excuse me, the church at large, but they also have been affecting this local church. And so, again, if I could just say it very simply, that, that we are seeing a, a, an old heresy repackaged for modern-day evangelicals. That's all we're seeing. You've heard the phrase, those who don't remember or can't remember the past are condemned to what? To repeat it. And, and that's why I, I, I pulled this book off my shelf and went, looked through some of the, 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 the chapters here. This is J.C. Ryle's classic book entitled Holiness. Uh, it's Nature, Hindrances, Difficulties, and Roots. He was a bishop in the Church of England back in the 18, late 1800s, early 1900s, and uh, wrote this book uh, like 120 years ago or so. And, and, and let, me just, let me just read for you uh, just some of the things he says just to encourage you and challenge you that, hey, this is, this is nothing new, and the better we know the old paths and stick to the old paths, right, uh, and not launch off into the new paths that come along, right, the safer we'll be spiritually. Listen to, to tell me if this guy didn't have uh, discernment. Um, again, you're gonna think he wrote this, that this book just came out last week on Amazon, okay? It didn't, but you're gonna think it did. He says, the plain truth is that men will persist in confounding two things that differ. That is justification and sanctification. In justification, the word to be addressed to man is believe, only believe. In sanctification, the word must be watch, pray, and fight. What God has divided, let us not mingle and confuse. There is much in the attitude of professing Christians in this day which fills me with concern. There's an amazing ignorance of scripture among many, Thousands will crowd to hear a new voice and a new doctrine without, without considering for a moment whether what they hear is true. There's an incessant craving after any teaching which is sensational and exciting and rousing to the feelings. 
I was reading somewhere that a guy recently talked about you know, how, how we just need to make grace as radical and as scandalous as possible. It's like 200 proof alcohol and you just need to be drunk with Jesus all the time. Drunk on grace. You know, just to make it radical. I heard another guy, again, this is an extreme example, I understand that, but he said, hey, if, Jesus was, if I knew Jesus was going to come back next week, I'd go out and get drunk. Just, just, just to know that I have liberty in Christ and it's not going to affect my relationship with the Lord when he comes back. I'm like, are you serious? That's what you'd do if you knew Jesus would come back. How about going out and telling everybody you knew about Jesus, right? Um, but that's just kind of some of the extreme uh, things that are going on here. He says, I must express a hope that my younger brethren who have taken up new views of holiness will beware of multiplying causeless divisions. I plead that a movement in favor of holiness cannot be advanced by one-sided statements or isolating particular texts or overstraining particular texts or by exalting one truth at the expense of another or by allegorizing or accommodating texts and squeezing out of them meanings which the Holy Ghost never put in them, or by speaking contemptuously and bitterly of those who do not entirely see things with our eyes. And then this is a statement that I think is very, very important. He says, A movement in aid of holiness which produces strife and dispute among God's children is somewhat suspicious. And as I've watched this thing unfold, even in our own church uh, from time to time, um, I thought, why is this producing strife? Why is this causing division and disputes among God's children? Something's fishy about this. Strange doctrines have risen up of late upon the whole subject of sanctification. Some appear to confound it with justification. Others frittered away doing nothing, to do away to nothing under the pretense of zeal for free grace and practically neglected altogether. Others are so much afraid of works being made part of justification that they can hardly find any place at all for works in their religion. In justification, our own works have no place at all and simple faith in Christ is the one thing needful. In sanctification, our own works are, are of vast importance and God bids us to fight and watch and pray and strive and take pains and labor. Words such as these appear to me clear, plain, and unmistakable. They all teach one and the same great lesson that true Christianity is a struggle, a fight, and a warfare. He that pretends to condemn fighting and teaches that we ought to sit still and relax appears to me to misunderstand his Bible and to make a great mistake. You thought he was just, I was just reading you a, a recent blog post, Right? And so chapter after chapter after chapter, Raoul emphasized the role of discipline in the believer's sanctification and, and repeatedly exhorts his readers to strive and to struggle and to fight to be holy. But, but, don't miss this. He carefully and beautifully balances out his many exhortations to be holy by always reminding his readers of their utter dependence on Christ to be holy. Talk about Somebody who was gospel-centered, Christ-focused, Christ-dependent. He says, to live the life of daily faith in the Son of God and to be daily drawing out of his fullness the promised grace and strength which he's laid up for his people, this is the grand secret of progressive sanctification. Believers who seem at a standstill are generally neglecting close communion with Jesus. 
He that prayed, sanctify them the last night before his crucifixion, is infinitely willing to help everyone who by faith applies to him for help and desires to be made holy. Holiness comes from Christ. It is a result of vital union with him. It is the fruit of being a living branch of the true vine. Go then to Christ and say, Lord, not only save me from the guilt of my sin, but send the spirit whom thou did promise and save me from its power. Make me holy. Teach me to do thy will. Paul was a man of God indeed, a holy man, a growing, thriving Christian. And what was the secret of it all? He was one to whom Christ was all in all. He was ever looking unto Jesus. He said, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. Let me continue uh, with this final section. He says, a special faith in our Lord Jesus Christ's person, work, and office is the life, heart, and mainspring of the Christian soldier's character. He sees by faith an unseen Savior he loved, who loved him, gave himself for him, paid his debts for him, bore his sins, carried his transgressions, rose again for him, and appears in heaven for him as his advocate at the right hand of God. That's gospel center. He sees Jesus and clings to him, seeing his, the Savior and trusting in him. He feels peace and hope and willingly does battle against the foes of his soul. He sees his own many sins, his weak heart, a tempting world, a busy devil. And if he looked only at them, he might well despair. But he sees also a mighty Savior, an interceding Savior, a sympathizing Savior, his blood, his righteousness, his everlasting priesthood. And he believes that all this is his own. He sees Jesus and he casts his whole weight on him. Seeing him, he cheerfully fights on with a full confidence that he will prove more than a conqueror through him that loved him. See how it all comes together? All the books that we've been reading over the last several years and men's ministry, women's ministry, because he loves me, all these things, right? Uh, It all comes together. If we're faithful to maintain the tension, right, and the balance within the word of God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and and how sometimes it appears confusing at first, but um, ultimately that's that's really just in our minds. It's not the confusion is not in your word; it's in our own understanding of your word. And so, help us, Lord, just to maintain this this biblical tension of the of the trusting in Jesus and, and the trying really hard aspect of the Christian life. And Lord, that we would be uh, biblical Christians, Lord, who 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 love Christ and. And, uh, and, and relish how much he loves us. And, and yet at the same time, Lord, we would strive to be holy even as he is holy. We know that ultimately um, our love for Christ should, should motivate us to want to obey Christ. And, and uh, ultimately it's his love for us um, that compels us to live for him. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.